Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here today with uh, Jay Hasbrook, and Jay is a Pathfinder at Facebook working on the new product experimentation team. Previously, at a number of great companies. Also, you know, you're previously a partner at Ethnoworks, founder at Filament Insight and Innovation, as senior special human factor specialist at IDEO, research scientist at Intel, and of course, as many people will know, the author of Ethnographic Thinking from Method to Mindset. So, Jay, uh, I do want you to kind of give you know a little background on how you came into anthropology, but I'm going to sort of tee that off by saying that. You know, when looking at your history, I see that you started in policy and management at Carnegie Mellon before going on to get your PhD from the University of Southern California in social anthropology. So I'm particularly curious, you know, of um, why you made the change along the way and what kind of helped you realize that anthropology was, you know, the profession for you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Matt. I, I really appreciate the time to sit and chat. Um, I think I, I have to say that one of the biggest um catalyst for me to move into anthropology was a professor, um, Professor Judith Modell. Um, her, her, she, has, she has since married, her, her last name is now Schachter um, at Carnegie Mellon. And she taught a number of courses that I took just because I needed to fill some credits. Um, and one of them was in visual anthropology. And it was really, really inspiring. And it was small group seminars and a really you really got to engage with the material. And it was the first time I think I'd ever really engaged with anthropology. I don't remember ever having exposure to it in high school. Um, and she was just a really gifted facilitator and teacher um, and truly inspiring in lots of ways. So um, I didn't end up majoring in anthropology because at the time, Carnegie Mellon didn't have a major in anthropology. Um, but that is what inspired me to move on. Um, I spent a little time working after undergrad um, in public relations and environmental policy in particular and wasn't finding it very fulfilling. So I started thinking back to what I really what I really loved about what I'd had um, exposure to in my past. And I just coming kept coming back to anthropology. So that's what that that's what primarily what led to the shift. Got it. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, you know, on the way to the PhD, your master's was in visual anthropology. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think in large part inspired by um, Judith's course and really thinking about how you might how I might combine creativity and thinking about um, cultures and also just learning um, a new language, which um, which is a really critical part of visual anthropology is not only um, producing a visual um, deliverable, but but thinking about what visuals mean in people's lives, you know, developing um, an understanding of what that looks like and how to both under how to both interpret it and then also use it as a form of expression, which was really something very exciting to me. Um, So I finished that degree um, and then decided that I'd completed a lot of the coursework and wanted to continue expanding my thinking in, um, in anthropology. So all told, it was a 10-year ride, which apparently is common, I've heard, in um, cultural and social anthropology. It was a, it was a, it's a long run, but uh, I, I, I'm really grateful for that experience there. Great. So I think you're the first person on this particular podcast of mine that um, is a visual anthropologist. So you know, I don't want to jump ahead too much into your career, but I'd be curious, have you have you continued to use, you know, visual anthropology as a means to document? You know, is that very present throughout all of your work? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, I place a high value on visuals as a form of data, both, vi- both you know, still images and video imagery. Um, I really I really think there's a lot um, there's a lot of data there, a lot of really rich ways to understand cultures and understand people that we kind of lose sight of when we get trapped up, trapped in words. And I think that happens a lot. I, I think you see that um, to a great extent, a lot of cultural anthropologists um, really, I think, rely too heavily in some ways on the spoken language as the only way to understand a culture. Um, so I've, I have leaned quite heavily on that. And I like to also play with visuals on the deliverable side as well and think about how can we, how can we help 
um, people understand where we're going and the insights that we have in a way that's more compelling and more immersive. Um, and visuals are often a, a fast forward way to do that. Mm -hmm. And in your experience, do you, you know, do you find that presenting the data in that way, in any particular way, visually is better, you know, or is, is video almost always better than say just still images? Like, you know, is it completely contextual? It's totally contextual. I think um, I've seen video bomb. Um, I think there's there there without context and without inter the interpretive value that we bring to it as as practitioners. Um, it could really just be it could come close to meaningless, and I, I've seen that happen. So I think it really depends on your audience. Uh, lately, I've been thinking a lot about um, exactly that tailoring the kinds of deliverables we have. In, as researchers into, into kind of buckets and thinking about, you know, when you're working with a team, I'll, I'll just throw out a couple of, exa of examples. So when you're working with a team that's maybe midstream and they're moving fast, um, you're probably much more likely to get benefit from the kinds of deliverables that are more like headlines. You know, really just sort of like, I'm just trying to steer the ship, move, the, move it slightly one way or another at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but in contrast, if you've got a group that's you're working with that's really on the front end of developing whatever product or service that they are, um, in that case, I think you can you have a lot more room to do the kinds of exploratory deliverables where you might bring in a lot more video, and you might bring in you know clips and stills and different kinds of explorations and let people um, become inspired by what it is you're trying to offer. Mm -hmm. So I, really, I mean, there's there there are other things in between as well that I've been working on, but um, I think those two ends of the, of the spectrum are good ways of thinking about how we're communicating clearly and, and inspiring the people that we want to reach. How about, and maybe, you know, this is kind of related, but I guess you could say it's sort of slightly outside of visual anthropology, but how about audio alone? Do you find that there is a, a place for, for just audio? I actually do. Um, one of the deliverables that I'm working on right now, in fact, I'll be recording some stuff later today, uh, is a three-part podcast for deliverable um, on a project focusing on community development and um, cohort formation. Um, so that we're, we're, we're taking, it's a bit of a bold step. I mean, but one of, the, one of the ways that we're positioning, I think hopefully will be appealing, is that it's a chance to step away from the computer, step away from any screen, get out and take a walk and, um, you know, think about something that's you know, stimulating and relevant to what you're doing, um, but doesn't require your, you know, 100% attention. Um, so we're trying to make it pretty lightweight. You know, it's, it's, it's basically each episode has like three themes that we hit. Got it. Oops. And is that, for in, oh, sorry, is that for internal teams then? Yeah. 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 It's very interesting. Pretty, uh, yeah, pretty cool way to, to kind of help, you know, bring them into the insights without being kind of too heavy, right? It, it is, you know, put it on, go to the gym. That's it's definitely a nice way to, We're to approach it. Yeah, I would be curious to see how that turns <laughs> out. Um, so to fast forward a bit, um, kind of away from the visual anthropology piece. So, you know, your career has, has you've gone through a number of leading companies, you know, Intel, IDEO. And so, you know, at, at IDEO with a title of human factor specialist, it does sound like that's a little bit more kind of blocking, tackling, a little bit more evaluative than, you know, pathfinding at Facebook. Is that, was that the case or was it still more kind of on the generative discovery side? It was very much on the generative discovery side. Um, I think that's just the title they had for all of us, um, people who were, you know, researchers at the time. And I think it comes from some of that is uh, a legacy from how design has originally thought about research, which has been is it a fit? You know, like, uh, can we find the fit? Um, but all the projects that I work on there, worked on there were mostly zero to one projects. I, sh I shouldn't say all, most of them were zero to one projects looking at the future of selling, the future of um, energy conservation. Um, so most of them were those big sort of um, meaty problems that um, we had in some cases had like three or four researchers on a team um, tackling these big issues. Got it. So, you know, I think, this doesn't apply to everybody, but a lot of people I talk to really do aspire to sort of be much more in that generative discovery space. I think many people find it fun to be at that fuzzy front end and innovating and really defining the problem space before even coming up with solutions. And um, you seem to more or less have been there from the beginning of your career. And so that's kind of a unique opportunity for you, but it's also not easy to pull off. So how did you manage to kind of you know make your way from a PhD into that type of work? 
Yeah, um, I, I think I really kind of stumbled into it in a lot of ways. Uh, I was teaching at CalArts at the time, um, and I was sort of thinking about what was next, where I would go. Um, and I wasn't sure teaching was the way or was the was the path that was made the most sense for me. Um, and then I somehow came across a listing for a position at Intel. And that was the first group, I think, that was embedded within a product group. Up until then, they had a people on practices group that was mostly about this more think tank, basically. Mm-hmm. So we had a so I was part of an initial group and there was another a, sort of a parallel group called the digital health group. And we were focused in those spaces on the home team and the health team. And because of the way that just the nature of silicon in general, our timelines were out. They were years out. Um, We needed to understand where was technology going to be in the home in five years, for example. Um, And where was it going to be in places where there was an emerging middle class that was going to start buying some of these products in five years? Um, So we were, I think in that sense, um, I don't think I, I don't think I, you know, headed toward it intentionally, but I ended up there. Um, and it was a great experience. And Intel, I learned so much about, obviously, about technology, but also just about how to relate to uh, a cross-functional team. Um, it was, it's filled with challenges, and, I'm, and those, none of those challenges are gone. I think many researchers continue to struggle with those, but um, thinking about strategies to uh, meet them where they are, to, you know, to actually think of them in many ways as um, an ethnographic culture, uh, sorry, an, an ethnographic project, a, a culture in and of themselves, the, the cross-functional team, and, um, you know, dig deep into their values and their reward structures and their priorities and their behaviors so that you can really understand where they're coming from. Um, you know, their heads aren't in our space the way <laughs> the way we might assume. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I think it was short short version of that. Is I pretty much stumbled into that at Intel, um, and it think, felt like a natural fit. So, you know, you just said it felt like a natural fit, which is great because other people obviously have like some issues with getting accustomed to the pace, you know, although your pace again was probably a little bit longer given Silicon, but nonetheless, you know, a lot of people do, do have some challenges when making that change. Um, And, but there is the opportunity to really be researching. I think, you know, in, in, when you were speaking with Keith Kellerson, you said sort of like the ethnography of everything. And so... I'm curious to know, were you doing that on your own or were you also, you know, were you just tasked with sort of more like anthropology, business anthropology in the design space, or were you also brought in to think about it from an organizational perspective or did you just sort of, you know, bring that into the process based on your training? Yeah, I would say um, we weren't brought in to do that. Um, and I think the re- the one of the kind of light bulbs that went off or some members of our team were, was the failures that we had. We were, we would, you know, we would come back from the field with a set of insights and, you know, um, or, you know, a, a prioritized um, set of experiences we know the users want and then try to translate those into feature sets and hit a brick wall, right? Because we weren't speaking the same language as the, the dev team in one way or another. And we, we were, um, in many cases, either um, we were off target, basically, in terms of maybe the number of features that could even be embedded within a chip, you know, because we didn't have that technical knowledge. So I think over time, it was really just a lot more listening, a lot more thinking about where they're coming from, what capabilities are, and trying to do a little bit more of that matchmaking. Um, And then bringing in folks that could do some of the more um, sort of ergonomic issues or some of the more, the, 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 the sort of the bridge between research and engineering. We had a few folks that we brought in to help do that as well. And that, I think, went a long way to translate where we were trying to go with our insights. So I'd say, yeah, it was, there were, there were, it was an uphill battle for a while. And we were a new team. We were a new, new set of research, a different kind of research. Um, so I think we learned the hard way <laughs> more than so anything. So as, aside from listening and you know, arguably learning the language of the other disciplines, whether it be you know, engineering, business, whatever it may be, do you have any suggestions for people who are new to these kind of roles and how they can kind of quickly acquaint themselves and, and really you know, be a successful collaborator in an embedded model? Yeah, I mean, for sure, as you mentioned, listening, um, understanding where they're coming from. I think getting a deep technical understanding is, is really beneficial. I mean, I don't, you don't need to be able to code, but I think if you get a good understanding of you know how long certain types of um, 
whatever it is you're I mean, if it's if it's hardware, it's another thing. But if it's software, how long did, so might it take to build? You know, a certain set of experiences um, gives you a gives you a stronger ground to stand on. So I think that's all useful. Um, but I think in addition to that, really trying to understand. Um, as far as the organization goes, to be able to back up and zoom out to 10,000 feet and say, you know, if this is successful and we can move it forward, where does it fit within the larger constellation of offerings? Where does it fit within the consumer perspective of the brand and, and or the technology itself? Um, having that broad lens is and being able to zoom in and zoom out like that is actually pretty unique to ethnography and anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that skill is really appreciated if you can communicate it clearly. Uh, so I would say really try to exercise that muscle or try to think about, you know, is this a time where I should step back? So can I, you know, where, when do we zoom out and what, what um, additional insight am I offering here? I think those, those things go a long way. Now, you know, when zooming out, sometimes we can get very broad, you know, in anthropology as, as a, maybe as a discipline has, has, has a little challenge with this. Sometimes we can kind of get a little broad to the point where, um, you know, it seems like people could tune out maybe, right, in the business world. And so how do you how do you personally balance, you know, bringing some broader concepts into, you know, a business meeting and translating them in a way that the rest of the team can sort of make sense of without seeming, you know, like you are being overly academic? Yeah, it's a great point, Matt. I think and I think you're you're spot on in, in terms of that that being a challenge. Um, I've learned a lot about storytelling over the over the years, and I think that at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. Um, we're telling a story each time, and that um, that actually works to our advantage. You know, people learn through metaphor, uh, as Mary Catherine Basin would say, and I think that's good. And we understand metaphor really well. I mean, it, not only is it a form of data that we often um, use when with our participants, but it's also something that um, we should be well versed in as we're delivering our our insights. So I. In that sense, um, I, I, I'm very careful to think about where I use theory um, and what, how it's timed. I think it's really important to start your deliverable with something that's completely and directly relevant to your audience, thinking about where they're coming from so that something resonates right away. And I think it's perfectly okay to open up big questions, you know, as I say, you know, the, the, the big what ifs and things like that. That actually stimulates interest and gets people, you know, involved. But the way you answer them needs to be, you know, something that follows their line of thinking. It does. It shouldn't jump right to theory from there. So I very judiciously use theory. Like um, most recently, I, for example, I've used um, right, rites of passage as a way to think about community um, cohort formation, and that was actually a really interesting tool for a lot of people, but in small doses, you know, just enough to understand the basics so that they can translate it to their own work. Is it safe to say, to some degree, like you use like the kind of um journalistic almost like inverted pyramid model like you you know start with the the findings like that will capture them and then kind of go broader yeah i think in a lot of in a lot of cases that's true i think there are different mindsets that you're you're, you're aiming toward you know i think in some cases um it depends on like i said before where the team is some cases all you're going to get is the headline right mm-hmm. but in some other cases where you really want to dig in and you do have a bit of an argument that you're developing because you you know maybe through a, the course of three studies you're starting to see patterns um, and you have some unique interpretive value to offer. In that case, you're almost, I mean, you, you maybe are, you're following the journalistic model and the deliverable, but you're also acting a bit like an attorney. You're building a case, right? You are, you're, you're stacking ideas so that at the end, they follow your rationale and they, they, they come to the same realization that you had. That's the ultimate goal, I think, in many cases, to have, for them to have, to, to internalize the insights that you reached. It's not easy, but I think that um, there there's some there's some ways to get there through narrative in particular, um, and making sure you're touching them. Um, three three principles of storytelling that I that I love to follow that I think are really useful. This was specific to us to a project I worked on around online storytelling, but I think they transfer pretty broadly, and that is authenticity, emotion, and interaction between the storyteller and the audience. Those three things really go a long way. If you can, you can find places within your deliverables to touch people in those ways. Yeah, sure. And you see it today, you know, in creators on any of the social platforms that excel. You know, it is it very much touches on all of them. Right. Um, so storytelling is also important, really, in selling yourself. 
you know, selling a business if you started one and you did start one. So you went on, started filming Insight and Innovation, did that for many years. And so, you know, that leaving corporate and choosing to start your own business is interesting in its own right and has obviously, you know, some opportunities and challenges, which I want to ask about. Um, but I also kind of want to then get into, um, you know, what, what did you do to kind of grow it? How did you how did you position the services you've offered um, to really help people understand that you're providing value? And so to kind of go back from the start, maybe you want to just say a little bit about why you chose to leave corporate and, and be an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, I loved IDEO. It was a great place to be and I learned a ton there. Um, but I had a client that came to me and said, you know, we're, we're starting um, this giant um, innovation initiative within a large healthcare company. Um, and we need someone to help shepherd that process. Uh, so it was an opportunity to start my own business with an anchor client. Um, and it, it was, you know, I, I figured I won't have this opportunity again, probably. So I figured I'd jump and try it. Um, I'm, you know, I have pretty high tolerance for risk as a person. So I was like, what the hell? Um, and it went, it was great. I mean, yeah, it was a, a fantastic experience, but that, that was primarily what, you know, it was circumstance in some ways. And also, you know, a bit of an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial um, bend. Um, the very first thing I did when I out of um, when I finished that um, job with the um, environmental policy consultancy in D.C., they had a news clipping service, um, and it was a traditional, literal news clipping. They would, with scissors, cut newspaper articles out of the newspaper and send them to you based on the topics that you wanted. Um, and I realized very at that time that, you know, hello, there's this whole other side of the world called the Internet where people are actually, uh, you know, like exchanging information. And so I started something called CyberScan. Um, so I had a bit of understanding of like, I, I'd like to play in that sort of entrepreneurial space. CyberScan eventually got pushed out of business by Google Alerts, as you might imagine. There's there are a lot of ways to find information um, and track information online. Um, so. What I'm getting at is it didn't feel too far afield for me to start my own company and, and um, go into consulting. And I think my particular take was, you know, sort of innovation, but with a, that deep, deep understanding of the kind of cultural context that we need to be able to innovate strategically. Um, so, I mean, I think there are design firms out there that do it, but the focus for filament was primarily um, that lens. Hmm. So, you know, of course, you know, IDEO had already been, well, David Kelly had already been on TED. Human-centered design was popular. People, you know, HBR was writing articles. People were starting to kind of, you know, in a, in a more mass audience, were starting to kind of get a sense of this kind of work. But it was still, you know, it's not like you're going to walk into every business and they're going to get what you did. So aside from your anchor client, which you were obviously very lucky to have that opportunity, were people getting what you were selling after that? Um, I think so. There were times when um, we would, um, I, when I say we, I would always partner with folks. I rarely ever worked alone. I don't, I, I think it's almost impossible to do what we do alone, <laughs> to be honest. I think it is a collaborative, and you get just so much better uh, deliverable and better experience when you're working with others. Um, but I think that there were, you would, we would run into clients from time to time that um, really kind of, I think that they were expecting market research. And instead of understanding the, 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 the deeper insight that we were bringing to the table. And so eventually I put together a slide that was like market research on one column, <laughs> ethnographic research on the other column. Here's the difference. Right. Um, and we're not here to, you know, we're, we're here to uh, understand deeply rather than understand broadly. You know, there are all these it goes through each of the stages. Um, and that did help, I think. And then the other challenge, I think, for many people um, is that our analysis process is often a huge black box for folks, the way we mm -hmm. identify patterns and then move from patterns to themes and then eventually to insight. Um, it's really tricky when if someone's coming from a very quantitative focused background and a lot of people who hire researchers from large companies are do have that background or have an MBA in X. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was, that was, I think those two things were tough. And I think the, what I've done and what's been really useful in terms of helping people understand what, how we get to our insights, you know, the, our final, where we, where we land is to help work backward, right? So start with the insights and say, okay, here's, here, here are the set of recommendations and here are the insights that we have as a team based on our informed perspective. Um, they arose from 
this cluster of themes that was built from this kind of these patterns we saw across all of these observations and in, in across our and across our, our field work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by tracing that backward, people were like, okay, now I, I mean, they may, they may not be able to reproduce it, but they get that there's all there's a, it's systematic and that there, you know, there is a, um, a rational logical way that we, we got to where we did. Got it. So, you know, building on that, I don't want to jump ahead to Facebook too much. However, you said something that I'm curious to ask a question about. So, um, you know, obviously Facebook historically is known for its engineering culture, move fast, break things that all, you know, all that, the, the, the sort of the, you know, the mythology sort of around that grew up around it, you know, classic, you know, a founder who's an engineer, right? So, um, I would presume that there is, you know, a preference in many places within the organization for quant data, but I could be wrong. Um, but so, you know, do you, have you found any, you know, any way to best sell qualitative data to an audience that is, aside from the sort of working backwards, like, is there anything else that you have found that really helps a quant audience understand what you're doing? And maybe say, like, see the value of it when the end value is not huge. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, uh, you might assume yes that Facebook has this sort of quant leaning culture, but it, I, in many ways, there's there's a there's a lot of receptivity for qual, and it, I think they're um, very smartly organized as an organization to be able to understand what that balance should look like and when we should lean on which. Um, as you might imagine, there's a great deal of emphasis placed on metrics. And there, and we have a huge data science team, um, which is not the same as quantitative research, but um, there's you know it's it's along that line along that line. Um, so I think some of um, some of our um, product managers and other leaders, I think they are pretty good at knowing like when do we need to ask a question and when can we pull from the data we have to get a better and more granular understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a ton of one of the benefits I think of being part of a a social media giant or being part of any social media company is that uh, many of the leaders also realize that emotion is a lot is a plays a huge part of how people interact with these platforms um, and community, you know, in, interaction and engagement. And they understand also that those things aren't going to come from metrics entirely and that we need to understand, especially if we want to understand what's next, we need to understand people at a pretty deep level. Um, so they get that. And then I would say in terms of tools that I've found really effective at Facebook, um, I've been really um, and personally interested in, in many ways um, in thinking about the sort of historic and evolutionary um, perspective on where we are and where we're going. So looking toward the future, I think in many ways is about looking at the past and thinking about where what kinds of human behaviors have been compelling um, and what kinds of what kinds of ways are they present currently and where what does that tell us about the range of possibilities in the future um that kind of people can understand that i think and and even if they're not an anthropologist they get that you know evolution is part of who we are um so this oftentimes leans on things like evolutionary biology and neurology and other disciplines that can help inform and back up some of what it is that we're offering as qualitative researchers that has been pretty effective yeah it's interesting i'd like to maybe um, I'd like to come back to the range of possibilities, but just to to kind of build a bridge between what you were doing in your own, you know, as an entrepreneur and Facebook. So, you know, in a lot of your work, you know, whether that's, you know, some talks or, you know, writing, you seem to have an interest in strategy. Um, and you know, strategy is one of those things that I've been asking about it recently on the podcast because it's one of those things that it seems to come up that everybody has sort of a different take on it. Um, but obviously, if you've started your own business and you want to be sustainable within that space, you need to have your own business strategy. And of course, we can contribute to the strategy of our clients. So how did you look? You know, I'm curious to know how you looked at like sort of um, positioning so I'm going to tie this to your book. So, um, you know, you re- you generally refer to everything as ethnographic, ethnographer, as opposed to anthropologist or anthropology. And so I'm curious to know, is that sort of key to your own positioning of, you know, of what you do and how you framed out the business and maybe why, you, you know, you chose one over the other? Yeah, I mean, I would say personally, I certainly identify as an anthropologist, um, but I think that the, the tool of ethnography um, has broader 
uh, more people know about it and it has um it's easier to access i think for folks they kind of get um the it's not as sort of laden with um a, as much of the history um and some of the things that are more difficult to people on for people to understand that anthropology has um i think when we're talking about a broad audience that is so I, I think it's it's very accessible, and I actually believe that you know there are a lot of other people in other disciplines that can practice ethnography effect very effectively, and so it doesn't need to be an anthropologist who does it. So I wanted to I wanted to aim toward accessibility um, and um, the kind of insights that can be easily integrated, um, and I felt like ethnography could go there more easily as a concept um, or as a practice rather practice. Um, can achieve that more successfully than talking about something that's so big like anthropology and and as you know that that word carries with it you know all kinds of assumptions about you know archaeology and you know like linguistics and you know there's physical anthropology so um, it, it, I think it's easier to tighten it a little bit and I found that that was the case and it also I think is easier to translate some of that to strategy as you mentioned I think that I mean that was my strategy yes certainly in the book but I think also the the a lot of the findings that come from ethnographic investigation in particular um, they're they're really suited toward application in a lot of ways um, so we don't we don't see we don't it isn't necessary as it might often be in anthropology to have um, extreme longitudinal investigations for example or what i would call them extreme <laughs> too many they may not be but you know sure. like you know a five-year investigation of a culture that's you know no one's no one has the patience for that in the applied world yeah so um so i'm with you there you know and but what i think is interesting about strategy to bring that back is that i oftentimes when i'm talking to people i feel like what I'm hearing is that the insights lead to a set of decisions that produce something. But for me, when thinking of strategy, I am much more concerned with long-term sustainable competitive advantage, um, which seems like in many ways it would relate to your you know current role in terms of pathfinding for new product experimentation. Um, you know, instead of just, you know, here's my insights, we're producing delivery, uh, deliverable, you know, an insight that's going to inform a deliverable that is helpful for some short period of time. I mean, I really want to look at how can we protect our position over a long period of time. Some of that may relate to, you know, intellectual property that obviously can't be replicated for given re- you know, for such reasons, you know, or, um, you know, another position in the market that is just, you know, so disruptive that it's difficult to, to ramp up too quickly. Um, even if not maybe necessarily protected by intellectual property. And so, you know, I'm generally looking at it from, again, the sustainable competitive advantage perspective. Um, And so when you think of strategy, I mean, how does that relate to you? Does that resonate at all or, you know? Yeah, I think it does. And I think one of the things that happens with when you're in, a when what you produce is almost always aimed in the strategy space and not as much in the product space, which is, there's a mix for, in terms of pathfinding, of course. Um, I do tend to then lean more on anthropology, right? So to start thinking about those longitudinal, some of those longitudinal questions. Um, so it's, I think it's a combination. For example, my, my methods now, um, some of it is user research or research, ethnographic research, but there's, there are a lot of other um, different uh, components, I would say, that, that are part of um, contributing to developing a strategic POV. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned before, we're tapping things like, um, you know, neurological studies, we're tapping things like evolutionary biology, but also, you know, tracking industry trends um, and thinking about demographic shifts. So there, there are a lot of components that you need to take into the, the pool of data gets much bigger. And I think in some cases that requires an anthropological, you know, we need to, we need to lean on um, an anthropological perspective even more in pathfinding. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's specifically a combination. I think the book, in, in its goal, is really to say, hey, we're not only about this is not only a practice that's focused on pulling the user's POV into the company. It's also something we can use much more broadly. And there are, there's some characteristics of the ethnography that that really go a long way. Things like curiosity, you know, that's something that should be, I think, inherently part of any of any um, organization's um, approach to the outside world. For example, 
Um, so in any case, yeah, I think I think pathfinding has has stretched. I think the or has uh, filled in some of that space. I think between anthropology and ethnography um, for me. Got it. And so, you know, that well, obviously, very interesting. It also produces new challenges, right? They get massive data. Um, the knowledge needed to understand that data, which somewhat implies, you know, a need for a collaborative effort, you know, right? Other other scientists who can come into the process. So can you speak of, you know, what new challenges that's presented you? And also, you know, if there's any really interesting opportunities that maybe I'm not thinking of? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, I mean, I think we benefit in some ways as ethnographers and anthropologists, because in many cases, we've, if you've, if you've been in this discipline long enough, you have been dealing with a really disparate set of data. You know, you've got, you you know, if you think about um, working with audio, working with video, working with, you know, observation, working with interviews, all of that um, really trains your mind to think flexibly about, you know, and, and also to, to think sy- sy- systematically about what is the value and what does each offer. So that's good. Um, but I think that the, the pool of um, data in pathfinding also involves not only the data, but then also thinking, okay, how does a data scientist perspective, you know, influence what is that we're doing? You know, um, how does a, you know, an expert in the subject matter expert who has a very distinct and very clear understanding of their field and where it's going, but it's, but it's one, it's one vertical. Um, So how do we, how does that play in our larger um, analysis? So I think the challenge becomes it's it's quite large um, in terms of you know trying to understand what that synthesis process looks like, mm-hmm. and I think I spend much more time in synthesis than I than I ever have with um, the other research that I've done. I would say that it's maybe seventy percent of of the research. Interesting. And so, how do you deal with that? You know, is there anything you're finding that's helpful to bring in that multivocal perspective of of all these different disciplines aside from you know, sort of just quoting them from a, you know, for what they said and just sort of throwing them all in there? Like, how do you actually bring that together? Um, Well, there's, there are a lot of tools out there. I mean, um, there's um, consequence mapping and there's um, horizon scanning. And I think each of them have their, there are other tools out there in this, in the pathfinding slash foresight space that help uh, digest and make sense of the the different um, sources of data um, spreadsheets, <laughs> but you know, it only, all only goes so far, as you know, I mean, one of the things that I think is really important is to get from and, and pathfinding to get from signal to driver. And what I mean by that is just, it's easy to see something that, Oh, you know, there's something there. There's some, there's some, there's some real potential here. We think this is likely to grow because it just seems to hit all of the, it, it resonates with different populations, with the time, with perhaps some sort of event that just happened. Um, and then moving from that to a driver where you're, you're saying, okay, well, what is it that's actually going to um, keep this so that it's sustainable? What is it, what's going to give this legs? Um, which is a different thing altogether, right? So sort of think about the catalysts that are, that may be or may not be behind these signals. So some signals might be really strong, but they could easily fade to be a trend. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the ones that need that, that are t- attached to or, you know, in some way um, related to a driver that can that can move them in many ways? Um, that is where some of the anthropological thinking comes in as well. Right. So is it touching on some basic core human needs that we can that we that we feel um, the experience is tied so closely to that it will help it live or it'll help it sustain longer? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, <laughs> The pathfinding space is, you know, well, let's just say it's more of kind of the frontier of the kind of work we're we're doing, you know, in the applied space. And so, how would you suggest people chart a path to get to those roles? Because again, it's you know, most people are not going to step into those, right? So, how can you know any of us, you know, sort of lay out the road in front of us and get there? Yeah, I think um, I think this. There are a lot of, I know, researchers who are out in the field who are already thinking this way and they don't know where to land that kind of insight. Or it feels like it's, it's you know, a satellite and, the, the, you know, it's a, if they present it, it's a sort of a distraction. 
And I think that's actually, it, that may be true, but I think it also depends on how it's presented. So if you've got a, lar- a broader insight and you have some um, really well substantiated POV on where you think this is going, I think it's important to bring that to your leadership in some way and to, and to share that and to demonstrate that, you know, you're really not just a reporter. You're really not just, you know, echoing what it is that users say. So I, I, between sort of like pointing toward um, where you see instances like that um, and also making sure that you are um, always demonstrating our interpretive value. Right. So I think that a lot of people come to research with a lot of assumptions. We want this question answered. Um, you can start there. Right. I mean, oftentimes I think a lot of people, they they're they're within their team or a client comes to them and they have 20 questions. A huge um, a huge way of helping them see that there's more to what we do and also that you could you might um, work your way toward a, sort of a future facing role if you're interested um, is to say, OK, well, let's make sense of these questions. Let's think about you know, is there a larger line of inquiry that we can be asking that would answer all five of these questions, right? And and we're better off actually, you know, going up a level and 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 shifting our focus so that we can better answer your problem. Um, that kind of strategic thinking and that kind of advice from you know for a client or for a team, I think, goes a long way for helping them see that you're you're not just um, echoing. Okay. And so when in this sort of futuring space, you know, I think there's an interesting distinction that I think there's a lot of people out there and I'm not necessarily, I'm not suggesting anthropologists, though there could be some who fall into this, but probably more coming out of like classic, the the classic business kind of consultative space. When I look around, I see a lot of people who are almost in the business of prediction, which is, you know, pretty hard to do uh, for obvious reasons. Um, whereas I think it gets back to what you said about a range of possibilities, you know, and, and looking at how things may unfold versus predicting. Um, and so do you, do you struggle with people sort of wanting you to predict versus explaining how, you know, the various ways that something could unfold? Um, not as much. Uh, one of the advantages that I have, I think, at Facebook is that the role of a pathfinder is, although I think there may be five of us in the company, but um, it's still real, people kind of know. I mean, people come to me when they think they, you know, when they want that kind of a perspective in terms of identifying opportunity areas, whether it be geographic or topical or whatever. Um, so I have, I'm lucky enough to have a relatively informed set of um, stakeholders who aren't asking me to predict the future. I think the yeah, I, I mean, I do think that's possible, and I think um, it's easily enough solved or resolved. Rather, is to is to really point out that you know that's not the business that we're in, and we're um, really here to help understand you know point toward opportunity zones with a with a substantiated rationale behind it. Um, I will say though that a lot of the work that we do often involves working with vendors, and there's a whole mix in that space. Um, and so you there are I think there are some folks that are, you know, purporting to sell magic. And I think that there are others who have a truly, um, you know, well-substantiated and, and well-reasoned approach to Foresight's work. Good. So to sort of, um, you know, to kind of pivot here and, and tie a bow around all of this, I'd be curious to just get a, a uh, some input on a few things. One, I've never asked this question to anybody, but is there anything that you're reading, you know, now or that you would recommend reading for people who are interested in pathfinding? Because it's not, you know, I don't think you find it per se. It's not, it's not something you find in the classic kind of literature, right? So, yeah, um, I've came across this model. If you just give me a second, I can find it. But uh, well, I won't be able to find it quickly. But it's called the Three Horizons model. I do remember that. And I'm starting to explore that now, and it's it is really about maturity of businesses, and you know, like if if we're if we're thinking about um, every business um, has the potential for eventual decline, um, and how that intersects with other businesses that are um, on the incline, um, really trying to get a, a better and clearer understanding of what those the intersection looks like between those inclines and declines, um, and I think there are three horizons that this model presents. I'm just now starting to get into it, but I think um, really trying to take it's in many ways an evolutionary perspective of the life of a business or any business and start to think through where you might be in, you know, or within your company or where your client might be um, and what are, what's out there on the horizon that might be on the ascendant 
um, I think it was a really valuable set of context. So I've been playing with that. Um, I'm really also digging now into um, work on community. I've spent a lot of time in my in the past thinking about community, but I'm thinking a lot about community um, cohort formation and community and also um, leaderless um, sort of some of my dissertation focused on leaderless cell-based communities. Um, but so borrowing from some of that and thinking about how does that translate to in positive senses. When I say cell-based, I don't mean uh, necessarily anarchists, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, basically people coming together um, from their own, based on their own motivations um, and how we can help facilitate that. So those two spaces I've been working on or thinking about. And uh, to the latter point, primarily for self-organization or from like more of like a volunteerist perspective? Uh, for, of any kind. Any community of any kind, yeah. So, I mean, it could be volunteer community, but it also could just be interest-based. And so we're trying to actually sort that out. That's a good question because we're trying to sort out, like, um, a lot of people throw the word community around and what they really mean is identity um, or they or they really mean a community of practice or they mean a community of purpose. Um, so we're really trying to get a sense of what is what are the distinctions there um, and where are, the, where, are the, where are the kind of experiences that map well to those as people start to think about community online. They, they're tying those together much more now, particularly because of COVID, but I think mm-hmm. in general, um, that's been the case for quite a while. Got it. Great. And, you know, obviously we've both studied anthropology. It's an anthropology podcast. Generally, everybody on here recommends anthropology. But I'm wondering if you think today anthropology is sort of sufficient to do the kind of work you're doing, or if maybe, you know, if somebody's in like a master's program right now or, or even undergrad and looking like towards the future, if if you think there's any value in like looking broader to some kind of, you know, sort of multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary program that brings in the type of research that we do in that perspective, but also maybe has a tech or an engineering or design component. Do you think, you know, it's... There's a lot to be said for interdisciplinary programs. Um, as part of my um, dissertation work, I was part of the Center for Sustainable Cities at USC, and I was part of a team that included an economist, an economist, a geologist, uh, a biologist. And anyway, it was it was a great experience because it really teaches. You, I mean, I think the biggest lesson that I took away from that was that each of these disciplines has their own language. And until and it took us, I think, a month on some projects to get to the point where we, when we said something that everyone else understood, you know, in vice versa, you know, that we were sharing a common understanding, um, and that goes a long way. And if you can the best, you know, if you can shortcut that, that's great because there's, you know, one of the, I think one of the disadvantages of traditional anthropology programs um, is that they tend to focus on sort of the, the lone maverick anthropologists. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think that um, that you can't do in applied settings is operate completely on your own. Um, so I think that that's, that, that, that said, I think it's really useful. That said, anthropology as a discipline changes the way you think, I think, in some really um, beautiful ways. And I don't think there's any, I think I certainly have no regrets there in terms of um, my own deep dive in that space. Um, yeah, I mean... The academy often is quite out of touch with the applied world. That's another issue um, altogether, I suppose. That's another whole podcast. Yeah, right. You, you know, you just said when you're talking about collaboration there, you know, one thing I'd, I would just point out is that today, you know, many anthropologists are ending up in tech and tech is a deep, you know, is a, is a domain with sort of uh, where it requires deep knowledge in many disciplines coming together. And so you know, to your point that we can't work alone as the, as the sort of the lone researcher, I mean, we really are working in a complex field, you know, that involves engineering and design, right? And there, there, it, there just simply is very, you know, there's a little chance to understand it all. It's, I'm not saying that it's not, that's not the case elsewhere as well as maybe doing some kind of governmental type work, you know, as an anthropologist or what. I mean, I, I appreciate those complexities everywhere, but we really are in a, you know, very fuzzy front end kind of place frequently. Definitely. So. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and, they, and the, you know, the best ways to navigate that are, I think often, you know, to, to, to one of the things that we're actually blessed with as ethnographers and anthropologists is we you have to learn how to facilitate, right? If you if you've done a decent amount of ethnography, you're the stranger in a get in, a, in someone's home, but you're also some expected in many ways to lead the interaction. So you need to be a facilitator that's quite graceful in many ways, 
um, that goes a long way in terms of collaborating with teams coming from other perspectives and, you know, making sure that you're leaving space for everyone and, and that you're entertaining, all, treating them all as data points in some ways, right? You're entertaining all of those perspectives so that so you get a, a really holistic perspective. Yeah. And, you know, you said facilitator. Last thing I would just say on that is um, I also don't think that we only need to be thinking about research roles, you know, because as a facilitator, which we're trained in, we are really, you know, we we, we can plug into product management roles really quite well. Yep. And as I've talked about in various settings, you know, you very much get to bring in the design component, the organizational component, the kind of marketing and consumer behavior component of business anthropology and bring that all together in one role. Um where it's expected of you in one role, not that you're just doing it because you know you need to do it. Um, so for, I mean, personally, I think people should consider that, but how do you feel about that suggestion? I think it's incredibly inspiring when I see an anthropologist go into something that's not research. I think it's really cool. I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about the way they've used, I, I, I have a, I think it might be a quote in my book as well, um, from an anthropologist who was working in the nonprofit space as basically a program manager. Um, and she was talking about how she uses her anthropology every single day, trying to understand the different needs of stakeholders. And, and, and she you know, wasn't researched by any stretch, um, but all of the different ways she used, the ways that we're trained to think were really inspiring to me. And I, I think, I, think there should, I would like to see even more of that, actually. Yeah, agreed. So great. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to call attention to? I mean, of course, I think everybody should check out, you know, the book, Ethnographic Thinking from Method to Mindset. But, for, you know, anything that you want to bring up that maybe we haven't touched on, whether that's, you know, you just want to plug an organization or anything that you're up to. Sure. Yeah. Um, right now I'm co-organizing and well, I think I'll be co-hosting a panel for the upcoming EPIC um, conference. That's Ethnographic Practices and Industry Conference. Um, and it'll be focusing on pathfinding at Facebook. So I think uh, pathfinding and foresight strategy, there's sort of two titles that do, they're very close cousins. Um, so there'll be a panel, I think the week before the actual full conference. So anyone who's interested should definitely join that. We'll be talking about some of these topics and diving a little deeper. Um, yeah, and I'm working on a blog post that I've, I've been sitting on for a long, long time, focusing on... Um, belief systems basically uh and where we are in our current moment around belief systems and uh you know sort of this some of these ideas are i guess it's a it's a pov on how we might handle um the struggle of misinformation but also the struggle of conspiracy theories and all the things that um <clears throat> i don't think certainly not the press but in many ways i don't think a lot of us have thought deeply enough about how to direct how to address and how to acknowledge where those um the impetus for those beliefs come from well, that sounds great. Definitely uh, look forward to seeing that when it's out. Um, so, Jay, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. It's great talking thank you, with you. Thank you, Matt. It's been an awesome conversation, and thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.